This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. If you're a fan of uh, great stories or epic movies like I am, you may enjoy, after uh, finishing a story or at the end of a story, thinking back over the events that unfolded and revisiting it, or even revisiting it a second time to dwell on the recurring themes or images that transpired to help enrich your understanding uh, or or reading or or viewing. Our text today is not a continuation of the narrative that we found last week in chapter 21. It's more like a montage or a retrospective, a song of praise written by David looking back over God's faithfulness to him throughout his life. And because I can't resist giving away spoilers, we'll see that this text not only looks back, but it also looks forward to David's offspring, whose throne God covenanted to establish forever. Now the writer uh, of the books of Samuel uses songs of praise as bookends for this account of Samuel, Saul, and David through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. In fact, Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have another song of praise, a prayer uh, uh, prayed by Samuel's mother, Hannah. And uh, in that she prays and she praises the Lord for his faithfulness. And providentially, the same themes are carried through both prayers. So it would be worth our time to revisit Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. So if you want to, keep your finger there in 2 Samuel 22. And you can flip over to 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. I will read it to you very uh, uh, quickly here. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the prayer of praise from Hannah in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Now... In chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, we have a prayer of praise from David, the king. As we look at today's text, see if you could pick out some of the same themes and images. 
2 Samuel 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This is a psalm of praise written by King David, but we aren't sure exactly when he wrote it. It It's not clear. It says after he had uh, had been delivered from the hand of all his enemies and the hand of Saul, which kind of, is a, it's, it's a wide period of time. So what we have here is David looking back over all of the victory that God has given him over his enemies. So it's possible that this was written sometime maybe after God made his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. It could have, may, may have been at this point in his life, at the end of his life, after all that has transpired, looking back over what has happened. However, the placement of this psalm tells us that we should read it as a retrospective informed by the history of David's monarchy, both the good and the bad. And it's interesting to note that this psalm is actually found twice in Scripture. Here, and also Psalm 18, where it is almost identical. There are a few added phrases or variations based on spelling, but the English translations are, uh, of these passages mirror each other very closely. Reasons for the discrepancy, it may be that one was an earlier draft and one was a later draft, or that there were scribal errors or t- uh, spelling differences or changes uh, uh, of, of how words were spelled. One writer suggested that one of them is written phonetically so that it could be read out loud more easily, um, and that's the reasons for the differences. Whatever the reason, we have this psalm twice, which means God wants us to read it, and God wants us to study it. So that's what we're going to do today. So let's begin this psalm of David, this song of deliverance from the king. He said, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The big idea today from this text that I want you to to take away is that God is a rock of refuge for all who run to him and call on him in humility and faith. Our God is a rock of refuge. He is a strong tower. He is a fortress where we can find safety. Now, these first three verses serve as a sort of theme that we see played throughout the rest of the chapter. David builds on these themes, but he comes back to these words of refuge and rock and salvation. Now, first of all, notice, the Lord is my rock. Uh, as we've said before, this when in your English translation, you may see it in all caps. That's because the Hebrew is the word Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God. It's not just any God who is his rock and refuge, but it is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am that I am, the one who made a covenant with his people that he would never abandon them completely, and that he would always be their God. David says, this God who keeps his promises, that is my rock, that is my refuge, that is who I know. Notice right away the personal nature of David's relationship with God, his repeated use of the word my in describing God's attributes and work. That he's not just a rock or a fortress or a deliverer, but he is my deliverer. 
He is my Savior. David is testifying to a personal experience with this God. A personal experience of God's protection over him. Only those who belong to God and know God can pray like this. Those who know God don't just think of, well, maybe if there is a God, maybe he'll take care of me. Those who truly know God know this is my God whom I serve, who loves me and has protected me and provided for me, who cares for me. And I have a relationship with him. Note also that David was saved from his enemies. As we know from reading, as we've read together through 1 Samuel, these include even members of his own household. People who sat at his own table became his enemies. Matthew Henry notes that the Christian will always have enemies in his life if he or she is following after Christ. Jesus himself promised his disciples that the world would hate them as as the world hates him. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So the encouragement here is that uh, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is a refuge to his people when the forces of the world who oppose him oppose them. God is our refuge. God is our rock. In this chapter, David gives us four pictures of God. We see the God who delivers in verses 5 through 20. We see the God who deals righteously in verses 21 through 31. We see the God who empowers his anointed in verses 33 through 43. And we see the God who establishes his anointed in verses 44 through 49. Now you may notice there are some gaps between those passages. That's because David repeats his refrain and expands on it throughout. God is a rock. God is a refuge. So first, let's look at the God who delivers. The God who delivers. The God who rescues. Verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. David describes the severity of his distress. This seems to be not referencing a specific incident, but it is a general poetic description of all the threats he has faced, rather than referring to, a, to, to one specific incident. Spurgeon notes that David describes himself as like a prisoner bound and awaiting execution, a, a shipwrecked sailor uh, overwhelmed by the storm, a stag surrounded by hunters, a bird caught in a net. I wonder if you feel like this today. I wonder if whatever's going on in your life, whatever you bring with you today, that you feel hard-pressed on every side. That you feel under pressure. That you feel hunted or, or bound. There's good news for you in this text. David is facing such threats, facing such pressure. And he says in verse 7, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. This word distressed has the idea of being in a narrow place, being squeezed. 
He says, as I was squeezed, I called upon Yahweh, my God. Again, Spurgeon in the same commentary says that prayer, prayer is like a postern gate which is left open even when the city is being besieged by its enemies. Prayer is the way upward out of the pit of despair to which the spiritual miner, like the person digging in a mine, must fly when the floods from beneath break forth upon him. No matter how we are pressed in, no matter how we are opposed, no matter how the forces of, of the world and the devil are arrayed against us, prayer is our lifeline because our prayers as followers of Jesus and believers in the one true God cannot be stopped. In my distress, I called, to upon, I called upon the Lord and to my God I called From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. From his temple in heaven, he heard. God is not passive. God is not ambivalent. God is not apathetic to the cries of his people. They are not a distraction or an inconvenience to him. God heard and God acted. And this is a word worth repeating this morning. You may be calling out to God even now for mercy, for provision, for healing. Christian, your God is not inactive and your God is not uninterested. He hears you and he is acting even now for your good in Christ Jesus. Hear that. Hear that. Our God is an active God. Our God is a God who responds. So look how he responds here in in David's psalm. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them lightning and routed them then the channels of the seas were seen the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils this is not some helpless half-hearted deity who who sprinkles good thoughts on us and hopes that we're okay. This God is the maker of heaven and earth and all of creation bows to him. This God whom we call on, anything that we are facing, anything that that stands against us crumbles beneath him. David doesn't just tell us God responded. He provides this vivid imagery so that we see it, so that we feel it. 
so we hear it. This should evoke a memory of what happened on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 as God came down and thundered atop the holy mountain and the people of Israel were terrified. We see here in verse 10, it says, He bowed the heavens, and it could be translated, He parted the heavens and stepped down. Verse 12, He's shrouded in this mysterious darkness, but even in the dark, God is active to accomplish His purposes. In verse 14, you see again, God thundered, the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice. Remember again, Sinai, God spoke, and the people fainted at His thunder. Notice here that God's anger is not the passionate, impetuous rage of men. God is not flighty. His anger is a determined, holy vehemence in defense of his anointed. God acts. David then tells of his deliverance by the hand of God alone. Verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, a few things to note here quickly. We know that God didn't literally rain lightning down on Saul or on the Philistines. This is poetic language. But this vivid poetic description of God's direct intervention should direct us to remember, as we've studied throughout First and Second Samuel, all of the instances in these books where we saw God's providential hand at work, protecting and providing for his anointed king. In the same way, you and I can think back over our lives And consider all the ways, great and small, that God has protected and guided us. That God has saved us from from disaster or that God has put us in a good place. It's good for us to think over this. To consider how God has cared for us as his people. Another point. This passage again echoes the Exodus. You see here in Verse 17, he drew me out of many waters. This may be an allusion to Moses' name. Remember in in Exodus chapter uh, 1, I believe, 1 or 2, that when Moses as a baby was in his floating basket in in the river, that Pharaoh's daughter took him out and she said, I will call him Moses because I drew him out of the water. So here we have another allusion to to Moses. Um, We see that God rescued Davis from the place where he was squeezed and brought him to a broad land. This is also a reference to what God promised to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 8. That he would lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and into a good and broad land. Even though chapters 21 and 23 on either side of this chapter talk about David's mighty men. David says here it's only by God's mercy that he is saved. And this unfortunately sets up in the last chapter of the book that David, in, in, out of arrogance, takes a census of his nation uh, and forgets for a moment that it is not the number of people he has or the size of his army, but it is the Lord that saves. In verse 20, we see that it says that the, the Lord delights in David. This is echoed later in, in Isaiah 42 when the prophet describes another anointed servant of God in whom the Lord was well pleased. 
So we see a God who delivers. Next, let's look at a God who deals righteously. Verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to, the, to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now at first glance, this section can and should take us aback. This same David, talking about his righteousness and his blamelessness, is the same David who victimized Bathsheba, who had her husband killed, who refused to intervene on behalf of his daughter Tamar. He says he's blameless? How can we interpret this? Here are some things to consider. First of all, David is describing a trajectory of faithfulness that we are meant to see in contrast to his enemies, like Saul, like the Philistines and Amorites, like Sheba, Absalom. David never turned his back on Yahweh or chased after idols. However, we are meant to read this section with a full knowledge of his history and a full knowledge of his past sins. What we have here in this section, 21 to 31, is the result of Psalm 51 that we read earlier. Psalm 32. The Lord forgave or put away David's sin. He is clean because Yahweh cleansed him. God cleansed David because of Yahweh's because because of his faithfulness, not because of David's faithfulness. It's God's steadfast love and abundant mercy that enables an adulterer, murderer, and just lousy father to say, I am clean before God. It is only the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that allows David to make these bold statements. He believes what God has told him, that he has been forgiven. Note also that God doesn't just reward the good and punish the bad. He purifies the impure and shows mercy to those who need mercy and who are then merciful. Those who humble themselves, those who repent, find this God to be generous and kind. David isn't claiming to be sinless. He's describing how he has been made righteous. It's interesting that in the ESV... Uh, Verse 27, it says, with the purified you deal purely. Other translations just say, with the pure you deal purely. But there's a choice here that, that they emphasize in this translation that David has been cleansed by God, and he knows it. And we see that throughout the Psalms, that he has been cleansed from his sin. 
Uh, in, in discussing Psalm 18, Charles Spurgeon says, God first gives us holiness and then rewards us for it. There is nothing we have in terms of righteousness, holiness, or obedience that is not given and empowered by the God who cleanses us from sin. Perhaps you need this reminder this morning. If you have repented of your sin, if you have trusted in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus as your Savior, you have been washed clean. You have been made new. Like David, you may still face the consequences and fallout from your sin, and that is appropriate, but you will not face the condemnation for your sin because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss this, though. God rescues people who recognize they need rescue, but to the crooked and the proud, it says here, God becomes treacherous, torturous, rather. He, he becomes, not, not in a sinful sense, but in a sense that he cannot be understood or reckoned with. He becomes a stumbling block, a stone of offense, a blinding darkness, a fierce foe to those who stand against him and refuse to turn from their sins. Do not ignore the warning if you are defying God's rule today. Those who refuse to come to this God in repentance will assuredly meet him in judgment. There is still time. Humble yourself and repent. Let's look at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? David almost gives us a refrain of his theme here. And we should take a moment to think about this description of God as rock. We don't have time to do a full word study, though that would be awesome. But just a few references I can point you to to help with your thinking. First, I would remind you of Exodus 17. As the people are in the wilderness and they are thirsty. And so God says to Moses, put everybody over here on this side of the rock and you stand before them, strike the rock and water will, and water will flow out. And he did. Moses struck the rock and water flowed out for the refreshment and survival of God's people. Then in Deuteronomy 32, as Moses gives his uh, song uh, kind of a, his own version of, of, this, of this psalm. A little more pointed, a little more, uh, we'll say, convicting for the people of Israel who were hearing it. But I'll, I'll point you to a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Verse 15 but Jeshurun grew fat, this is talking about the people of Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek, for he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never, had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God 
who gave you birth. Verse 28 in this chapter, uh, Deuteronomy 32. For they are a nation void of counsel. There is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand or two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock, their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Their rock does not save. Verse 36. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Over and over in this, in this passage, we see Moses calling God the rock of Israel. This theme, this image of a rock that provides protection, a rock that provides provision, carries through. And later in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talking about the people of Israel and how Moses struck the rock to provide water. He said, the rock is Christ. That, that, that God is, is with them, that, that Jesus is the provision, Jesus is the protection, Jesus is the rock. He was always the rock for Israel. Jesus is the rock for us. Jesus is our refuge. Look next at the God who empowers or equips his anointed, verse 33. This God is my strong refuge. And he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of the deer and set me me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. And this is pretty, uh, pretty martial language here. Pretty, pretty violent language. This is David glorifying God for his military conquests when he had to go into battle on behalf of the people of Israel, when he, when he led them against their enemies. And I mean, we, I don't know, we, we live in a culture where if you're a, if you're a hero, if you're, a, a, if you're successful, if you're strong, if you defeat your enemies, you let people know about it, right? A little bit of, a little bit of swagger, a little bit of boasting. Is that what David's doing here? No. No. David, this victorious king, David, this mighty warrior, is saying that it is God alone 
who has given him victory. It is God alone who has made his hand strong. He begins to describe his victories as king, but he focuses on what God has done for him. God gets the credit for David's skill, his strength, and his success. He points out God's equipping and strengthening of him. And he uses this imagery of armor and weapons to describe all the ways that God has providentially uh, secured him and, and, and been with him. This should be a reminder to us as God's people to recognize that in all of our pursuits, God is the one who gives us the ability and the tools for success. In all of our endeavors, in, in work and in our, our you know, personal lives and in, in, in sport and in, in, in uh, you know, works of creativity and in accomplishment, work hard. Honor the Lord. You know, we heard in, in Colossians, you know, do it heartily as unto the Lord. But in all of this, remember that it is God who gives you wisdom, and it is God who gives you strength. Remember the, the warning that Moses gives to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, that when they get into the land of promise, that they don't settle in and think, it was my wealth and my hand that made this happen. There is nothing Nothing we have that we are not given by God. There's nothing we have that we, that we came up with completely on our own. Notice in verse 36, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. This is, uh, in a sense, he's saying that God's benevolently condescending or stooping down to him to lift him up. It's God's gentleness and his kindness in reaching down to grab a nobody out of a field of sheep and put him on the throne. It's this kind of humility that we should strive for. To remember always that all that we have and all that we are is because of the kindness of God. Notice in verse 42, the enemies of God even attempt to call on him in prayer in their time of crisis as they are facing this king. However, God will not listen to, pr- to prayers, to their prayers to act against his people or against his anointed. God is not, God's house is not divided. Remember the story of, of Balaam and Balak in Numbers 22. Balak wanted Balaam to put a curse on God, but God would not curse his own people for their sake. He, wouldn't, he, he ended up uh, uh, causing Balaam to pronounce blessings on Israel. In this section, we see David as God's agent of vengeance and judgment, bringing punishment to those who defy God and winning glory for the name of God. Perhaps this se- section can be a reminder to us that we should not just pray or praise God when things are hard, but also when we are, have experienced success. That when we ourselves have success, that we don't feel so confident and self-satisfied that we forget who it is who carries us. Finally, we see the God who establishes his anointed. Verse 44. The God who establishes his anointed. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I, whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. <coughs> Excuse me. 
The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock. And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. First, we see that God protected, protected David from internal strife. This was seen in how God not only protected David from the house of Saul, but even from those within his whole own household who would betray him and try to supplant him. In all of these circumstances, God recognizes, or David recognizes God's protective care. Not only that, but David also praises God for Israel's victory over her enemies and the tribute that Israel receives from other nations. David again praises his rock who established his kingdom and delivered him from the violent men who sought to end his life. This is another demonstration of God's faithfulness to David as he is beginning to fulfill all of his covenant promises from 2 Samuel 7. We get the beginning of that here in David's life. The name and renown of Israel would continue after David into the reign of his son Solomon, who despite his own foolishness and sin, received mercy and forbearance from God For David's sake. God establishes his anointed. David closes the psalm by returning once more to his theme. In verses 50 and 51. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. And sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. And shows steadfast love to his anointed. To David and his offspring Forever. Now here we see in these last verses that this psalm doesn't just look backward over David's reign. It looks forward to David's offspring. This is like the end credit scene that teases out what happens next. If you're a movie fan of a certain kind. God has promised to establish David's throne forever. And it's through his singular offspring the anointed one, or in Hebrew, Messiah, that all the promises bound up in the reign of King David are finally and fully realized. It is through that anointed offspring that this psalm of praise springs into even more technicolor brilliance. The future son of David, Jesus the Messiah, would be surrounded by his enemies, calling out to the Father for help, but standing firm in his obedience and his righteous death and resurrection was a thunderbolt and a death blow to the heart of mankind's greatest enemy, sin. Jesus would truly live a blameless life, obeying the law perfectly, and would see his recompense in the redeemed people won by his his redeeming death and resurrection. We are his recompense. We are his reward, the scripture says. Jesus was merciful, blameless, and pure to the humble and repentant, but shrewd and hard with the crooked and the arrogant who opposed him. Jesus is the champion of our souls, crushing the head of the serpent, declaring the victory won at the cross. One day, all nations, every tribe and tongue, will submit to his righteous rule as the king of all the earth, as every knee bows in submission. Can you see Jesus in this psalm? 
Jesus the rescuer. Jesus the blameless one. Jesus the victor. Jesus the king. Friends, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Brothers and sisters, this God, this God is a rock of refuge for you. If you are overwhelmed, under attack, weary from the fight. This God will come to your aid, supply your needs, and strengthen your hands for battle. This God will cleanse you from sin if you will confess your sin, repent, and believe in Jesus the Messiah. This same God, who guided the story of David's life, stands ready to rescue. Not because we are so worthy, but because he is supremely merciful. Call out to him. Cry to him. He will be your rock. Let's pray. Holy God, you are the faithful one throughout all generations. You keep your promises to your people. You are the covenant keeper. You have been a rock and a refuge, a strong tower and a place of escape and safety for your people, for all generations. You have rescued us from our great enemy through your son Jesus, our Savior, who lived a perfect life in our place, died a a painful and terrible death in our place, and was raised again to life as a first fruits and a promise of our resurrection in him for all who will believe. Father, I pray for the souls in this room, those who are weary, those who are are hard-pressed, those who are struggling. I pray that they would run to you, that they would throw themselves upon you as the rock of refuge, the sure footing, the solid ground. Father, those who are in sin, I pray that you would grip them with conviction, that they would repent of their sins and run to you to be cleansed. Father, for those who are in a time of success and triumph, I pray you would remind them that they rely on you for all things and that it is uh, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to you be all the glory. Father, in all of this, turn our eyes upon Jesus, our King and our Savior. Help us to trust in him, to throw ourselves on him, and to believe that he will hold us. You are good. You are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.